You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hello, everyone. I'm Jeremiah Johnson, policy director for the Center for New Liberalism and co-founder of the Neoliberal Project. The Neoliberal Project works in partnership with PPI, organizing chapters of young liberals across the country, building relationships with academics, journalists, and elected officials, and promoting liberal values through our media channels. Today's episode of Radically Pragmatic first aired on the Neoliberal Podcast. I sat down with Matt Gertz, senior fellow at Media Matters, who reports on the right-wing media ecosystem. We talk about how the conservative media ecosystem developed, its relationship with the GOP, and why it's gone so far off the rails. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Neoliberal Podcast, part of the Progressive Policy Institute. I'm your host, Jeremiah Johnson, and joining me today is Matt Gertz. He's a senior fellow at Media Matters, where he writes about right-wing media, and that's what the subject of today's podcast is, right-wing media and the interplay between Fox News, online right-wing media, the other kind of smaller right-wing channels like OANN and Newsmax, and the Republican Party, and how all those entities interact together. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Very glad to have you here. Um, So my first question requires a little bit of setup, I suppose. So indulge me for just a second. A 2015 study found that, and this is true, doctors are more likely to have subspecialities that align with their family names. For instance, if your last name is Ball, you're more likely to be a urologist. A few years back, the head of the judiciary in England and Wales was named Lord Judge, and that was his name, not his title, Lord Igor Judge. The fastest sprinter in human history was named Usain Bolt. These are examples of nominative determinism. It's the theory that your name drives your entire life trajectory. So my first question is, there's Matt Gates, who's become famous for spreading right-wing insanity, and there's Matt Gertz, who's become famous for documenting it. So were you fated to have this career? <laughs> uh I guess you could say uh, I might have been. I, I think I, I hadn't thought of it quite that way, but uh, it's been I mean, I, a. I, I really uh, think of Matt Gates as your like your evil twin, dark alter point. ego. Sure, uh, Florida man, the Florida man version of myself. Absolutely. You basically both make your living off of right wing insanity, just in very different ways. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, I'm someone who, as you say, has been documenting uh, what goes on in the right wing press uh, since I started at Media Matters back in 2007, um, with a, a focus in, in recent years on how uh, the uh, Republican Party tries to take advantage of the ecosystem that Fox News and its brethren create. And, and Matt Gates is a member of Congress who has tried to take advantage of that very ecosystem. It's uh, it's, it's an interesting uh, coincidence, I think. So I, I do have to thank you for being a good sport about that. Have, have <laughs> you made my, my last Matt Gates question? I promise. Okay. Um, have you made peace with it at this point? Is it is it you know are are you still like the Michael Bolton guy from Office Space where it, it's still deeply embittering, or have you basically like you know what this is actually I'm spinning this into a positive. I think it's mainly the latter. I mean, at this point, I, I can either go crazy about how my you know Twitter mentions go to hell every time he's in the news, or I can try to have a little bit of fun with it. And so I, you know, I I try to uh, get some positives out of it. Uh, I try to make uh, jokes about it as much as I can, um, and I think it's been at least mostly successful. Anything to boost the follower count. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's, 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 it's great for the follower count, no doubt. 
All right, so let's talk some actual history first. Um, I guess the first question I have is kind of just in a blunt way, like the right-wing media is in a really bad place. Um, it, there is no real both sides to this. There, there's certainly left-wing media that's kind of crazy, but it has nowhere near the power and the reach that crazy right-wing media does. So how early does this go back? How early did this start? What, what can we trace this back to? So I think when we talk about the right-wing media ecosystem, we're talking to a large extent about the creation of uh, people who wanted to consume it, right? I mean, uh, you had a real rejection of the mainstream press uh, beginning, I would say, um, certainly becoming becoming a, a, a real thread in the 1950s. Uh, this is a combination of uh, sort of a a belief that the press was insufficiently anti-communist, um, that it was uh, against Joe McCarthy, um, and that it was uh, too supportive of the civil rights movement. Um, you know, if you uh, there's a really great book uh, called The Race Beat. It's about the uh, way the press covered the civil rights uh, era. And the authors had an interview with uh, the late John Lewis, uh, the, the famed civil rights uh, activist. And, and he uh, gave a, a quote, if it hadn't been for the media, the print media and television, the civil rights movement would have been like a bird without wings, a choir without a song. Um, it was incredibly important for that movement to uh, have mm. cameras beaming what was happening in the South across the country. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But the people who, you know, were uh, enjoying the uh, segregated society um, were not keen on that happening. Yeah. And just, so, just as a note, just as a note, we had um, an academic named Omar Wasau on, on the podcast recently, and he talked about how literally they would plan, you know, the, the cameras are going to show up at this point. We have to have our protest at this time in the day because it will give them enough time to drive the film reels from Selma to Montgomery and for them to be flown from Montgomery to New York in time to make it for the evening news. Like they were planning this down to the, the, the hour and the minute almost. They were very cognizant. And the flip side of that, though, is that it was incredibly dangerous to be a national journalist in the South. I mean, you could get lynched by the Klan. It was... Uh, not a uh, a safe endeavor by any stretch of the imagination. And so, you know, that uh, right-wing reactionary activism uh, helped uh, power the Barry Goldwater campaign in 1964. Um, the 64 Republican convention was one at which uh, the press was really castigated by the attendees, uh, at times threatened, at times assaulted on the floor uh, for over uh, what was considered overly liberal coverage. Uh, you had President Dwight Eisenhower uh, from the podium, uh, former President Dwight Eisenhower, saying, scorn the divisive efforts of those outside our family, including in uh, sensation-seeking columnists and commentators, and everybody applauded. So you, you have beginning then a real uh, belief that the press could not be trusted. Um, and from that, the idea of creating a press of their own. And you know, this starts at the elite level um, and bleeds down over the decades. And you put that together with um, you know, the uh, Nixon presidency, uh, which was famously ended by uh, good journalism. Um, to the uh, chagrin of, among others, Roger Ailes, who later uh, founded Fox News. Uh, and you add in uh, the elimination of the Fairness Doctrine, which allowed uh, Rush Limbaugh and a host of uh, so-called Little Limbaugh's to spread across the country. Uh, it was a real uh, a counter-press uh, initiative um, that was happening you know, basically top-down from, from the highest ranks of the Republican Party. Um, with the idea of creating a more um, uh, a, a better grounds uh, in in which to uh, uh, try to take power politically. 
So do you think there's like a through line from kind of the, I guess what Hofstadter would have called the paranoid style of American politics to, you know, the the talk radio days to like modern Fox News? Is this all the same underlying phenomenon? I think that's right. And, and I think that it is a, uh, it's a feedback loop, right? As you give that audience more and more of that paranoid conspiratorial thinking, they demand more and more of it from you. Uh, and so over the years, I think you're getting a ratcheting up uh, of that tendency. So we talk about how this this could be said to go back to, um, you know, the, the the Goldwater days and maybe before. And, and I had wondered if there's even any linkage back to, to yellow journalism of like the, the late 1800s, early 1900s. But, but that may be, I don't know if that's a stretch too far. But is is talk radio where we really first see this pop up in terms of like the what is the alternative right wing media because there was the anger but it wasn't directed anywhere useful for a while you know Richard Nixon was still taken down by Watergate despite Barry Goldwater's anger and you know the mainstream media was pretty hegemonic still for a while after that and I thought about is it like these right wing newsletters that that kind of got sent out Phyllis Schlafly style or Ron Paul style? Is it talk Is it talk radio that really kicked things off? Do you think that there's like a an inflection point where like they realize there's really just going to be like this right-wing media e- ecosystem? I think talk radio is the major shift, um, mainly because it just allows uh, a much wider audience to be reached. It turns it into a mass media form of its own. Uh, there, was, there was a previous effort by Roger Ailes in the 1970s uh, to put together a sort of TV, uh, a TV network um, called Television News Incorporated. Um, that failed. It bled millions of dollars. It didn't really get anywhere. But uh, the ability of uh, the likes of Rush Limbaugh to be syndicated on radio stations across the country meant that you could create an audience of tens of millions of people all tuning in, having a shared experience with the host, um, and listening to his take uh, on the news uh, for hours at a time. So one other thing I wanted to ask before we move out of the history phase is... Was was there always this undercurrent of insanity and, and paranoia in right-wing media? Because you've been studying this a long time. You've been working at this for like 14 years now, and you've obviously studied the history in, in some depth. Did it Was it always this bad, or did it used to be more factual and, and better than it currently is? And was Rush Limbaugh always as bad as he was, you know, it, in, his, in the way that I know him? Was Fox News always as bad as they currently are? It's always been quite bad. Um, You know, when I talk to people about what's happening in the right-wing media, I think uh, people's sense of the history tends to be quite narrow. What's happening in the moment always seems uh, like a real real shock. Uh, And that's understandable. I mean, uh, when you look at what Tucker Carlson is doing every night, I mean, it's a combination of uh, paranoid conspiracy theories about uh, vaccines to uh, you know, talking points right out of uh, you know, a, a white supremacist uh, website. Um, but I look back 10 years uh, to you know, closer to the beginning of my career at Media Matters, and I see uh, Glenn Beck. Uh, having a show on Fox News, uh, which was entirely deranged. Um, You go back 15 years before that, and you've got Rush Limbaugh on the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal uh, talking about how the Clintons maybe killed a White House staffer and covered it up. Who knows? How can we say for sure? They say it was a suicide, but, um, you know, it's that sort of thing. I do think that the increased competition over the years uh, has made the craziness a little bit 
pure. Um, at Fox News in particular, uh, I think you can look back and say that the news di division was always slanted. Uh, it was never really the sort of um, straight news like any other that they pretended it was, but it's really become increasingly uh, inundated with the same sorts of tropes and talking points that the primetime hosts tend to uh, put out. Um, and there's, there's less and less of it, right? Fox has been increasing the uh, number of hours of their programming that is taken up by uh, the opinion shows. And so uh, I think that the undercurrent has always been there. It's always been a major factor and, and a key, uh, key reason that uh, viewers and listeners would tune in um, to hear this stuff. But I, I do think that both because uh, there's more competition in the space um, and because uh, when you get people hooked on this sort of incendiary rhetoric, uh, they always need more and more to sort of get the same effect, um, it, it is getting worse. So you mentioned some of the competition there. And I'd love to talk about that because the success monetarily of Fox News, and, and not just monetarily, I guess culturally and politically, Fox News has been very successful in, in almost every way that matters. And that's led to copycats. Um, this could be other television networks like OANN, One America News Network. There's Newsmax. There's... Um, a whole host of, of online outlets like Breitbart and Glenn Beck, actually, who we've mentioned, left uh, and created something called The Blaze. There's all of these alternatives now. And how have, first of all, I guess, how successful are those alternatives? And how have they impacted Fox? Yeah, I, I think it's really uh, a mature industry at this point. Um you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about how uh, Republicans had turned on the mainstream press. Um, and, you know, if you look back, uh, Gallup uh, has uh, been asking since the late 90s, uh, how much trust and confidence do you have in the mass media? Um, and uh, the numbers for Republicans started around 52% in 1998, and they drop over the years uh, basically year by year to 10% in 2020. So that's a huge percentage of the population that no longer trusts the mainstream press, and they're going for this alternative right-wing press instead. Um, and so I, I think what that means is as you get um, a larger and larger uh audience, you have a lot of incentives uh, at each of these different outlets uh, to try to appeal to that audience, to uh, attack the mainstream press, to attack each other at times, uh, to compete for that market share. Um, and so, uh, especially after the election, uh, you saw for the first time in a very long time, Fox News really needing to compete to try to keep uh, its uh, primacy uh, in the right-wing media. Uh, Donald Trump uh, thought that they weren't doing enough to support his uh, attempt to steal the election. Uh, and so he urged his Twitter followers to go watch Newsmax or go watch OANN uh, instead. Uh, and a lot of them listened. Um, you know, OANN especially uh, is quite small. They don't even... Uh, pay to be included in the Nielsen ratings, uh, but Newsmax saw a pretty hefty uh, jump uh, after the election uh, in viewership, though that's uh, tailed off a little bit. Um, you know, I, I think that there's certainly a big enough audience and enough money there to support a lot of different outlets, um, and uh, many of them have been quite successful at it. I do wonder when I hear things like, you know, 90% of Republicans don't trust the mainstream media, certainly some percentage of Republicans genuinely don't trust any media that's not Fox News uh, or, or its equivalents. But I wonder how much of that is just 
kind of a, a virtue signaling. It's it's polling as as cheering for the right team, where you know that you're supposed to, um, you know, if you're a Republican, you know that mainstream media bad. That's a thing that we believe, and so you'll just answer the way that you believe, or, or you're, you'll answer the way that you're supposed to, because you know that's kind of that's the call and response. But you know they're they're not going to actually distrust. A, a big New York Times report on something, you know, because it comes from the New York Times, unless maybe it directly says President Trump is bad. I I wonder about that kind of thing because do what, what's your sense of like, is it really virtually all Republicans have this intense dislike and distrust on every level of of ABC, NBC, New York Times, or is it more just like? We all know that, like, mainstream media bad is the call and response that we're supposed to have as Republicans. So I'm going to check the box that says it's a bad thing. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's possible that there's a little bit of that, though that in and of itself is is pretty toxic. Um, it has been a pretty effective uh, response, though, for Republican politicians when they try to deal with negative stories. They go on the attack, they go after uh, the publication, whether it's the New York Times, the Washington Post, or CNN, or what have you, um, and they try to delegitimize it from that uh, angle. And they seem to be getting away with it pretty well. I would be very surprised if the 2024 uh, presidential primaries aren't fought almost entirely on Fox News. Uh, there's just vanishing little reason for any of the candidates to go on CNN or MSNBC. Um, the audience just isn't there for them unless they're there to try to dunk on the hosts and create a viral moment that they can then talk about on Fox News. That's interesting. I, I would be, I guess I would be a little bit surprised if there wasn't some CNN, um, you know, NBC kind of presidential town halls and, and debates in 2024, because I know they had a number of them in 2020. But, you know, I'm, you follow this stuff pretty closely. Maybe that is what it'll be. I think that the, you might see that, but it will almost entirely be used by the candidates to uh, attack the questions anytime they get anything moderately challenging. Um, there's just not... The, the I mean, audience just isn't just wonders, there anymore. Part of me wonders if they, they still don't crave the legitimacy of the mainstream media because on some level, people, even people who believe Fox News is much better, much more accurate, this is the real news, mainstream media is fake, There's, they still kind of know somewhere deep in the brain, at least I think a, a pretty big portion, know that like this is seen as legitimate. This is seen as mainstream and legitimate and respected. And like, that's why you go on CNN is even though I think they suck, like everybody thinks this is the real thing. And I want that shine from writing in the New York Times. You know, Tom Cotton still writes New York Times editorials and and still goes on CNN to promote whatever Tom Cotton thing he's doing. You know what I mean? Like there's still that you want the legitimacy of those institutions, even if you simultaneously kind of think they're illegitimate. I think that there's a little bit of, uh, of something to that, but I think that the reason or, or the benefit for Tom Cotton of a New York Times uh, op-ed is that he can then get into a huge fight with the New York Times editorial side about whether it's legitimate to platform him or not. And that's something that he can turn into 5, 10, 15 uh, Fox News appearances and a, what is for the modern Republican Party a huge victory. Uh, you know, large portions of the GOP do think of the press as the enemy. Uh, Trump did put his finger on something there uh, to the extent that uh, there was a lot of um, uh, popular support in his party for what he was saying about the press being the enemy of the people. Um, and so if you can get into a fight with the major media outlet, you're showing that you, you have the right stuff. You are willing to uh, you know, go after uh, the, the, the right people to some extent. 
So we've transitioned from talking just about Fox News into now talking about many specific Republican politicians and about the GOP in, uh, as a party. So that kind of raises the question, what is the role of Fox News in the modern conservative movement? And, you know, if we think of the two most powerful institutions in conservative thought and conservative politics today, it's the Republican Party and Fox News. Which one of those is is the dog and which one of those is the tail? Like who's wagging who, I guess, is the question. I think it's increasingly difficult to tell or even to identify where one part of it ends and the other part begins. Um, you know, something that we see now that uh, we didn't when I started Media Matters is uh, politicians who really have as their primary focus creating content for the right-wing media ecosystem. Someone like Ted Cruz or Matt Gates uh, not only uh, does the same sort of Twitter dunking that you might expect from a B or C list uh, conservative pundit, but they have their own podcasts um, that they use to uh, get out uh, their message without needing to go through the mainstream filter or, or even the right wing one. So, so as a C-list Twitter account with a podcast, you're saying that I should be in Congress and really I could do this job. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's not uh, it's not as far fetched as it sounds. I think. I mean, uh, the way that you gain power in the Republican Party to a large extent right now is based on your ability to manipulate that right-wing media ecosystem, uh, to uh, garner eyeballs, to get attention. Um, so who's good at that? Who, who, you mentioned uh, Ted Cruz and Matt Gates, and I know Matt Gates is something of a pioneer, <laughs> something of an auteur, if you will, in this uh, field. But like, if you had to put a Mount Rushmore of of politicians who are good at manipulating the conservative media ecosystem for very cynical reasons, who would be on that Mount Rushmore? I mean, Donald Trump is probably all four faces on that Mount Rushmore, to be honest <laughs> with you. I mean, no one uh, figured out how to tap into uh, every aspect of it the way he did uh, and to use the various fault lines to his benefit even. I mean, there was that brief period um, you know, early in 2016 where you had the, the against Trump issue of National Review um, with a lot of you know, bold-faced names in conservative politics uh, and conservative media in particular all writing about how Donald Trump would be a horrible president. Uh, and he dominated almost all of them in the end um, and, you know, really showed that he knew how to use their outlets to get attention and, and to uh, get political power. Uh, so he's definitely the best. Part of it is just the media ecosystem that we live in now is very gamified. You know, the debates are you have 30 seconds to, to dunk on someone or to make, get out some soundbite and then they're moving on. And, you know, the, the way we run presidential elections is very much like a reality show, right? Where you've got to survive until the next round, get enough money, get enough attention that you don't have to drop out. And it's literally like a reality show with people dropping out and the surviving contestants keep getting to go to debates. And it, is it really a, su a surprise that, that a reality TV star won a presidential can't, you know, contest? I, I think that's definitely a huge part of it. The, the other part, though, I think, is that uh, Trump, beginning in 2011, uh, was making weekly appearances on Fox and Friends, uh, the uh, imbecilic morning uh, talk show on Fox News. Um, and they basically set him up with a segment in which they would pitch the news of the day at him and ask him to react to it. Uh, and he used those appearances to figure out what does this audience want? What can I give them um, to develop a personalized relationship with them uh, in a way that members of Congress and senators and, and governors simply didn't do? Uh, and so when it came time for him to finally run for president, he 
had that behind him already. He knew what that audience wanted. And that audience was a huge percentage of the Republican Party voters that he would need to reach. So I've got a question about Fox and Friends, specifically Fox and Friends, because, look, I I don't like a lot of people on Fox News. I don't like Tucker Carlson, but Tucker Carlson is intelligent. He knows what he's doing. He has a definite goal, and he works towards that goal, and he's effective. Um, I, I would say many things about Tucker Carlson, but I would never say that, like, Tucker Carlson is an outright imbecile or something like that. Um, Fox and Friends does not even get that level of respect from me. And my question about Fox and Friends is, like, to is it just... I don't even know how to phrase the question. Do, do the people at Fox realize how stupid the hosts are? Is it is it considered a good thing? Are they just not aware? Do they just not care? Like, is it is it a feature or a bug? Or or how, how do we even interpret how how deeply, horrifyingly dumb that show is? So I think first, I'm contractually obligated to describe my favorite Fox and Friends segment of all time, uh, <laughs> oh, which please. is coincidentally the dumbest one. Um, the This was, I guess, 2010, 2011. It's wintertime. The gang, for some reason, have set up uh, a uh, version of their couch outside the studios. They've got a fire pit in front of them. Uh, and all of a sudden... Uh, Steve Ducey and Brian Kilmeade decide that they want to roast marshmallows um, with their bare hands. So Brian Kilmeade's got, mar- he's got the marshmallows in his hands. He's sticking them out over the open fire. Um, Chris Wallace no, is... This, uh, this didn't happen. Come on. No, this happened. This absolutely happened. You can like, Google it. Say, like, it's say amazing. psych right now. Uh, no. Uh, Chris Wallace is watching. <laughs> is uh, remote. He's watching all of this on a monitor. He's laughing hysterically. Uh, having decided that the putting the marshmallows into their hands was a bad idea, Brian Kilmeade whips out a plastic spoon, puts the marshmallows in the plastic spoon, and puts that over the fire. <laughs> Gretchen Carlson is the third person on the couch, and she's attempting to host a a conversation with Chris Wallace about healthcare policy. But Wallace keeps laughing, and and uh, eventually she tries to get. She says like, "What what are you laughing at?" And, and he says, "I'm thinking the same thing as everyone else in your audience. What a bunch of dopes." <laughs> I'm. If you want to know what my face looks like right now, it's the Tucker Carlson face. That that thousand yard stare like how how could this be yeah they really are that dumb um and i i think everyone at fox understands that they're that dumb kill me in in particular i mean uh there's another story that involves uh they're doing a, a bit in i think a uh it's like a a cooking segment um and Brian Kilmeade asks Harris Faulkner, one of Fox's African-American uh, employees, uh, whether she uh, had a lot of jello at home or something like that. Um, and her face falls uh, because it's like horribly, uh, it's, it's, hor- it's a horrible stereotype. Uh, and later she uh, apparently has told the story. She, she went to his office um, for what she thought was going to be an apology but eventually she was the one who ended up saying, I'm sorry, because he just kept babbling on and on. Uh, and he asked why she was apologizing. And she said, because I needed to hear that from someone in this room. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're dopes. Um, everyone knows that they're dopes. Um, I, I guess the ratings still come though. So uh, they've been doing it for a very long time. I mean, uh, Ducey, Ducey and Kilmeade have been on that curvy couch since like 1996 um the the woman in the middle uh changes every few years but uh they've they've been there you know roasting marshmallows and what have you for quite some time that's that's a hell of a story man i i don't watch enough fox and friends to to be able to know those stories myself but i'm glad someone is watching um it's funny i I had this written down as a question, and you kind of addressed it already, but, like, does it even make sense to view Fox News and the GOP as separate entities? Because there's a lot of revolving door stuff. You know, you have 
people who, as you said, like Donald Trump uses Fox News as this kind of testing ground before his run for president. Um, it's a, it's almost an unofficial arm of the GOP in terms of it, it, it basically does their press and their media for them. Um, you have people like Laura Trump, who's now become a Fox News anchor or, or a Fox News something in anticipation of her running for Senate. And there's very much a revolving door there. So are are these two entities really joined at the hip? Yeah, they more or less fused during the Trump administration. Um, you know, I kept pretty close track of this, and I eventually counted 20 members of the Trump administration who had previously worked for Fox News in some capacity before joining. You know, that includes cabinet officials, it includes top uh, national security and economics uh, advisors, um, you know, really all through uh, the administration. He was, he was basically looking in Fox green rooms for talent that he could hire. Um, and, you know, the door goes both ways. As, as you say, Lara Trump is one of 10 different uh, members of the Trump orbit who are now working at Fox uh, or its uh, parent corporation. Um, and I think that's indicative of a broader uh, fusion of uh, the GOP with the network. Um, you know, Roger Ailes, uh, as I mentioned earlier, founded Fox News. He was a Republican political operative. He very much wanted the network to serve as a uh, more or less a, a propaganda arm of uh, the Republican Party. Um, but it's clearly taken on a more central role in Republican politics than simply repeating the talking points at, at, at this point. Um, because it has such a firm hold on the Republican base and the Republican activist core, uh, Republican politicians really need to uh, pay extremely close attention to what is going on there. They can uh, build their own influence by uh, you know, parroting the types of stories that the network is interested in or talking about. Um, and uh, they've done that uh, quite effectively. Um, Trump was obviously a huge part of this. Um, Republican politicians could go on the network and praise him and attack his enemies, and he would watch and he would uh, in turn come to like them. Uh, Matt Gates is a great example of that, someone who didn't have uh, really a legislative program, uh, but uh, he was going on Fox News and uh, attacking Robert Mueller and defending Donald Trump and President Trump was watching that, uh, and because he liked what he was seeing from Matt Gates, he started promoting Matt Gates. Matt Gates increases his power within the Republican Party uh, and becomes someone who uh, was considered a rising star and a potential candidate for statewide office, at least before the uh, current set of scandals uh, that have now befallen him. So, uh, you know, Fox News is. Uh, really the central facet of the Republican Party at this point. A lot of it is revolving around what its hosts want to do at any particular time. Yeah, I I think about kind of, I don't even know how to say it, directional graphs maybe, where you've got independent power bases and kind of arrows going from one power base to another, that, you know, this power base influences another power base. And in in a typical administration, that's pretty straightforward. You know, the the presidential administration influences everyone else, who then influences the people below them, and then kind of the activists on the very bottom try to exert a little bit of pressure on the administration. But it, it's all fairly straightforward. Whereas with the Republican Party, it seemed like during the age of Trump, Trump directed everything. Trump, if Trump says something. Every single Republican kind of has to decide, am I going to jump and say that as well? And if not, he's going to he's going to kick me out of the party and I'm going to be, you know, alone in Mitt Romney's club of daring to disagree with the president. And there was this really weird the weird dynamic that gets included there is Trump himself has very few ideas. You know, Trump, other than like personal loyalty and I hate China, maybe and I hate immigrants as, as kind of his driving ideals. 
Trump was basically open to whatever. So Trump is this all-powerful node where the arrows are all going out from Trump. But Trump would just kind of turn on Fox News, and you could tell that he had turned on Fox News and decided to tweet about something because there was this lovely little way to track, oh, Fox was talking about this at 11.07, and in 11.11 or 11.12, Trump tweets about the same topic. And you saw this like dozens of times. Yeah, I mean, I think I, you know, I made it a uh, part of my beat to track those particular instances. And I think I ended up with something like 1,300 of them over a two-year period. Um, wait, th- wait, hold on. You didn't misspeak there. 1,300? Yeah, 1,300. Good God. <laughs> yeah, he was, uh, he was watching a lot of television. Uh, and he was tweeting about what he saw on an extremely regular basis. You add that together, though, with uh, the fact that he was reportedly having nightly phone conversations with Sean Hannity, uh, that he uh, was bringing at various times Janine Pirro and Laura Ingram into the White House to talk about particular policies. Um, Fox News was really running a substantial portion of federal policy just because the president liked what he saw on the network. Uh, There were particular uh, federal contracts for uh, constructing the the border wall uh, that were actually awarded because the head of the company had a habit of going on Fox and Friends and basically pitching his idea to Donald Trump through the television. He got billions of dollars in federal contracts off that. Um, It's really bizarre stuff. Uh, What a great grift, man. Yeah, I mean, Paul Ryan, uh, there's there's been some reporting that uh, part of the reason that Paul Ryan couldn't hack it as uh, Speaker of the House under Trump is because Trump would call him up at 6.30 in the morning wanting to talk about whatever he was currently seeing on Fox and Friends. And Paul Ryan you know, has many faults, but is a somewhat more normal human being who was not aware of what was happening at Fox and Friends at 6.30 in the morning, and so couldn't really give him much. Uh, You know, Kevin McCarthy watched more Fox and Friends and indeed went on Fox and Friends a lot more frequently, and so ended up uh, having a much better relationship with Donald Trump. Though, of course, Paul Ryan is now uh, a member of uh, Fox's board, So uh, apparently it worked out okay for him as well. So now that Trump is gone, and we don't know if he's going to stay gone, there's still the possibility that he runs in 2024. But while he's temporarily gone, where do those arrows flow? Because it used to be the case that, you know, Donald Trump just influences what everyone is saying. Whatever Trump wants to talk about is what the party has to do. And this was very stressful for them because Trump is so mercurial. But... Is Fox News now the dominant engine of what's driving conversations? And, and if so, what what determines what's being talked about at Fox News? Is it really just the personal foibles of, of whoever the hosts happen to be? I think it is Fox News, and more specifically, it's Tucker Carlson. Um, looking back, uh, for the first couple of decades of Fox's existence, Roger Ailes, uh, the founder, ran a pretty tight ship. Uh, It was really a a top-down operation in which his particular obsessions were driving uh, the network's conversation. Uh, But he was obviously forced out in 2016 because he's a sexual predator and that became too public. Uh, And so, um, you know, Rupert Murdoch took over the network, but was fairly hands-off. For all intents and purposes, for the next four years, Donald Trump ran Fox News, um, and your power base at Fox was very closely tied to how close you were to Donald Trump, how uh, much access you had to his inner circle, to uh, Trump himself. Uh, So it was basically a a series of, of small... Uh, contained, uh, self-contained programs that were kind of doing their own thing alongside whatever Trump was doing. But since he uh, was defeated for re-election and since he lost access to Twitter, Tucker Carlson has really been given a unique amount of uh, influence by Fox's management. Uh, Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch 
seem to be generally uh, giving him the run of the store, so to speak. Uh, and they've been increasingly promoting him up and down uh, the network lineup. Um, his well, is he the one where other hosts and other programs are going to take their cues from what he's saying? Yeah, and more specifically, they're going to they're airing clips from his shows and then turning to their panel and saying, "Well, that's what Tucker has to say. What do you think of that?" Um, you know, it, it's really quite blatant. He's effectively the assignment editor for the entire network at this point. He's also just been given uh, a uh, big deal to uh, have a, a show on the network's uh, streaming channel, uh, Fox Nation. Um, which is a three days a week interview program plus some specials. Um, he's been guest hosting, or, or excuse me, he's been um, uh, he's been increasingly appearing on other programs as a guest, um, which is not something that you really saw in the past for the network's primetime hosts. Um, and so, in a real way, he is. Uh, running Fox News. He's the central figure there, and that makes him uh, a, a central player in the Republican Party. Sometimes when I look at this and I wonder, like, there's there's instances where Fox News pushes insane stuff. They, they flirt with the big lie that the election was stolen, and they continue to flirt with that. You know, some, some embracing it more outright and some doing more wink-wink, nudge-nudge, hinting. Um, they, they, they just traffic in all sorts of nonsense. And I wonder, to what degree do the people inside Fox know that they're pushing insane nonsense? And, you know, are, are the hosts true believers or are they cynics kind of exploiting the situation for personal gain? Um, are the rank and file workers, the camera people, the, all the assignment editors and, copywriters and things like that are they just needing a paycheck or are they true believers are the executives committed to this ideological mission you know i've been pondering this for years and honestly i don't think i have a lot of special insight to add um i think human beings are able to rationalize a lot if it's in their interest to do so um, and clearly all the incentives in the right-wing media are to push out this sort of hysterical, paranoid nonsense. Um, the extent to which any particular person really believes what they're saying, I don't know. Um, I, I think what really matters is that they're saying it, right? They're giving voice to these incredibly paranoid conspiracy theories and pumping it out to millions of people um, who are consuming uh, news about the world almost entirely through that crazy lens. To what degree is there division inside an operation like Fox News or or inside the the conservative movement generally, where you know are are there camps within Fox News where one camp is deeply unhappy with Trump and deeply unhappy with the the big lie that the election was stolen, um, and, and the other camp is just all in. They're all in on Trumpism. They actually believe the election was stolen 100%. They're in on that. Um, and and you, you could even expand this to, like, to what degree is there division between, like, Fox News thinks they're big and legitimate, but they look down on Newsmax, who, you know, has crazy conspiracy theorists, and, and the pillow guy is is running things, and and OANN is having random people from Ukraine pop up to try to push the hunter. Like, you know, they go even further into the depths. So to what degree is there division between like, oh, we're the legitimate conservatives, even though, you know, we might be pushing stuff that's a little crazy. We don't go that far. Is there any kind, are, are there camps like that? Are there distinct viewpoints? So historically, you've seen a bit of a divide between the news side at Fox and the opinion side. Um, this was, I think, best represented by Shep Smith, who uh, was a, a longtime anchor, one of the first hires there, um, 
and someone who frequently pushed back on Trump's various lies on air uh, and would even make public comments uh, that at least suggested that he thought that many of his right-wing uh, opinion host colleagues were total lunatics. Um, but Jeff Smith's not there anymore. Uh, he basically lost that fight. Uh, he got in a very public squabble with uh, Tucker Carlson. Um, and when he didn't get any support from Fox's management, he left. Um, so the, the opinion side has been pretty well, or excuse me, the, the news side has been pretty well routed at this point. Uh, there were a series of uh, post-election layoffs that were described by uh, some within Fox as ideological purges, where they were basically trying to get rid of anyone who wasn't fully on board with uh, the big lie and with, with being a, a Trump propaganda outlet. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that there certainly was at least the, uh, it, it at least looked like a factional rift, but then the executive sided with one of the factions, uh, and I, I don't think there's much left uh, of it at this point. So at this point, your thesis is that essentially the civil war within Fox is over, and and at this point, it's just it's Trumpified all the way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you have some people who at least say, I'm, I'm just paying, I'm just putting my head down, I'm doing my show, and it's fine. But there's not like a, a push to make Fox less crazy coming from within Fox. Another big question I have when I think about right-wing media is... Why does there seem to be an imbalance between left-wing media and right-wing media? Um, and I guess first I'll just say, why is left-wing media less popular? Um, because there, there's a right-wing and a left-wing in America. And maybe you could say, well, just the right, there's more crazy right-wing people. But that, that feels like an unsatisfying explanation because it, it seems to have always been the case that certain types of right-wing media are just more popular Right-wing talk radio has always been super popular, whereas Air America, which was a liberal alternative to right-wing talk radio, Air America flopped really hard, famously kind of went down in flames, and nobody listened to it. So why, why does the left-wing media just seem less popular? I mean, I think this gets back to some of that Gallup data that I was talking about earlier, because at the same time, you see this huge decline in Republicans who say they trust uh, the mass media. Uh, you see Democrats uh, having it stay relatively stable um, and uh, under the tr in the Trump years really ticking up to a great extent. Um, you know, Democrats are, are largely happy with the mainstream press, I think. Uh, to the party's detriment at times, I, but um, you know, I, I think that the the at least the liberal view, if not the the left wing view of the press, tends to be that uh, they're trying to go, do a good job, and sometimes they fail, and it would be better if they had better incentives and uh, did a better job. Uh, certainly, that's that's my personal take uh, on the mainstream press. Um, but the Republican uh, Party and, and the right wing take on the press is that they're an unsalvageably corrupt entity um, that you cannot believe. And that's a message that is much more likely to spur uh, its uh, people who believe it to consume alternative media. Well, I guess this is related to the second part of this, which is <clears throat> why does left-wing media not seem as bad? Um, when I say left-wing media here, I'm going to say like explicitly leftist media um, because like I, I don't identify as being on the capital L left as much as just kind of broadly center left, I suppose. And so I, I like to make fun of, you know, both conservative media and the leftist media that's out there, your, your Jacobin magazines and your current affairs and things like that. And they do a lot of dopey, silly things and say a lot of, it, have idiotic, embarrassing articles. But they're also like these incredibly unimportant web magazines for the most part. 
there's just there's there's no comparable left wing Fox News that has anywhere near the insanity or the reach. Um, and it just seems like when I was thinking about this myself, it seems like an obvious bad answer to be like, well, people on the left and center left are just much smarter and nicer and better people. And that's why, you know, right wing media is crazy, but not the other way around. Do you think it all ties back to just distrust of, of mainstream media on the right? Or, or is there something more to it? I think that's a big part of it. I mean, I, I think that, uh, again, the numbers just aren't there um, to have uh, a alternative media of similar size and scope that you see on the right, simply because most people who are left of center are broadly if not satisfied, then are, are willing to accept uh, the press that they have. Um, so someone like someone like Jacobin Magazine is stuck with like the two percent most extreme DSA socialists of the um, of the Democratic Party, basically. I, I think that's right. Yeah, it's it's hard to build too much of an audience unless you are willing and able to really tear down. Uh, the mainstream press and to get people to uh, listen to that message. You know, th I think the key factor here is that the Republican Party's incentives are, are, or at least they, uh, the Republican Party's incentives are aligned with that right-wing media ecosystem. Um, it is in their interests to uh, support um, the right-wing press and to support Fox News and to go after the mainstream press uh, in a way that uh, it's just not uh, in the interest of your run-of-the-mill Democratic member of Congress, governor, presidential candidate, what have you. Um, and so that really, I think, uh, motivates a good chunk of it. So we've got just a little bit of time left, and I want to get a question in here about the online component of, of right-wing media in the last four to five years, really with the rise of Trump, it, it, it existed before this, but Trump really metastasized this problem. Extremist stuff has been spreading across the internet. Um, you can think about places like the Chan boards. This is 4chan, but there's a lot of other ones too. 8chan has become um, the new home, I think. I, I can barely keep track because they keep a lot of these sites get kicked off their servers and they have to migrate somewhere else. But there's the Donald subreddit, which finally got banned and now has its own site. There's Vote. Um, there have been very explicit attempts to build a right-wing media ecosystem like Parler and Gab. Is there any linkage between the mainstream conservative media and these kind of extremist sources like the Chan boards and like, you know, the Donald and some of these other places, do they drive conversations? Are they like the originating place of some of these ideas? Or, or, or do you not see much of a linkage there? Yeah, it's a food chain. Um, you know, what you have is um, various conspiracy theories, instances of misinformation that get uh, dreamed up on uh, those boards that you're talking about. They'll spread through social media. Um, they'll get picked up by... Uh, websites that uh, basically trawl those sites all day uh, looking for, for news items, uh, sites like Gateway Pundit, uh, The Daily Wire, uh, and the like. Um, and then uh, that misinformation just moves up the food chain to larger and larger outlets to, uh, you know, might go viral on different social media platforms, uh, and then eventually turns into Fox News segments. Um, it's something that happens uh, with a good deal of regularity. Certainly, it's something that we saw a lot during the various uh, voter fraud conspiracy theories um, that were getting spun out uh, after the election. Um, a lot of those were originating uh, from uh, the Chans and, and other message boards and moving all the way to you know, Sean Hannity's TV show. All right. So the traditional final question on this show is where can our listeners go to learn more? If they want to, if they're fascinated by what they've heard here, they think it's important, they want to learn more about this topic, what can they do? I'm, I'm going to first point them to obviously Matt Garrett's writes at Media Matters, and you should go check it out. 
Um, we'll include a link to Media Matters in, in the show notes. But what else would you recommend for somebody who is interested in the topic? This could be books, blogs, YouTube videos, other podcasts, you know, it, academic articles, anything you think would be helpful. Yeah, I tend to point people, I, again, back to uh, the race beat, um, which is really a foundational work uh, in how a, uh, a new uh, topic began being covered. Um, and I, I think really does uh, show the origins of this uh, right-wing media or, uh, and the obsession that conservatives had with attacking the mainstream press. Uh, so that, I think, would be uh, the place to start. All right. Well, our guest today has been Matt Gerritz from Media Matters. This has been really enlightening for me and I hope for everyone else. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.